Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. Today we are joined by Heath Smith, a field scientist and lead instructor and acting director of Rogue Detection Teams. So Heath, cheers for coming on the show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so today's episode, we're going to be talking about some of the work that you do at Rogue Detection Teams. And for those who don't know, that's an organization that consists of both human and canine conservationists. So a wee bit different, pretty interesting stuff. But before we get stuck into some of those questions, can you please introduce yourself to the podcast? Yeah, I'd be happy to. My name's Heath Smith. I am the lead instructor with Rogue Detection Teams based out of Washington State in the United States. Okay, so Rogue Detection Teams, what kind of project is it and when did it start? What's kind of that story? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. So Rogue Detection Teams, it's, uh, it's kind of a handful to say. And obviously, it doesn't have dog in the title. And, and that was something we intended to do uh, that we discussed quite a bit. Interesting. And as, as far as when we started, I'd say that was that was around this time, about this time last year. So we've been around for just about a year. It's, it's a little bit closer to May, yeah. but um, almost a full year now. Yeah. And before that, it was canine conservationists. Is that right? Uh, we used to be part of a program called Conservation Canines at okay. the University of Washington. Yeah. Okay. And so why the, so you mentioned that it was intentional not to include dog in, in the name of the organization. What was the rationale for that? Yeah. So um, I've been, I've been doing this for the last a little over 19 years now. And through that time, I, I've learned a ton working with the dogs, but one of the things that that continues to to kind of come up whenever we're interviewed or or we're talking about a program it's always focused on the dogs and what we're really trying to get across now with kind of like just through our name is how important it is to have that handler attached with the dog um, to have that team aspect and so one of the things that as rogues one of the things we provide is teams we don't we don't rent or sell dogs to anyone um, that's not, that's not kind of how we're, that's not a part of our philosophy. Our philosophy is creating teams. So anyone's welcome to come and, and approach us, you know, like how do we teach people or they can come and take a course if we're offering courses and they can bring their dog or they can work with a dog we have, or we can help them find a dog. But in, at no point will we rent or sell a dog to someone, but we do, we do provide experienced teams to help researchers with their projects. Mm-hmm. And so rogue, why rogue? Um, Sorry, I'm, bre- I'm breaking down your name here. I'm like analyzing your name. <laughs> well, you know, that's exactly why we created we, we created the name the way we did um, to make it kind of a discussion point and and to kind of open up questions about why we do things the way we do. We went back and forth a lot on the name rogue. Uh, part of it was at the time uh, we were looking at property in the Rogue River Valley in Oregon. Um, we were really excited to kind of move down there. And, 
then we were going to take the name Rogue. As things turned out, we ended up moving to eastern Washington instead to a fantastic and beautiful area here. But we did keep the name Rogue. As we were leaving the, the University of Washington, um, there were certain things that kind of brought that about. And it, it kind of made us out to be rogues. Like we were, you know, when you see the movies about the rogue cops and they're, they're going against the administration and doing things their way and all that. Um, we kind of felt that way. And we wanted to create a program that kind of goes against the norm nowadays. Obviously, we're not bad rogues. We're good rogues. But, <laughs> but we are we are kind of that, that rogue wave that's coming through and doing things just a bit different. Kind of just yeah, a bit out of the norm, against the grain. Is that the word? Does yeah, that, I, yeah, I think that'd be right. Yeah, because yeah, there's nothing wrong with doing things a bit differently. I mean, I sit on that side as well. I'm a little bit different, and I'd I like to think that is a good thing. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if I mean, as you get to know us, we're we're all somewhat introverted and and different, but also mm. our dogs are kind of the rogues uh, in the dog world. They're they're dogs that have kind of been left behind a bit and and we're able to find them and and give them a purpose again yeah so can you just expand on that a bit so the dogs they come from like rescue shelters is that yeah yeah so they they can come from a lot of different places um they can come from shelters they can come from other programs like either conservation programs or police programs um, we've gotten some dogs from prison partnership programs where inmates are, are working with the dogs to as kind of a rehabilitation type aspect. They can come from owner surrender. So a lot of times owners will try to take their dogs to a shelter and, and the dogs had some kind of unfortunate past that the shelter may not want to take that dog. Or if they do take it, they can't put it up for adoption. So they'll encourage those owners to reach out to us. So there's rescues, there's shelters, all, all sorts of places. We're, we're not really particular where we get our dogs from mm -hmm. um, we're more particular about that the the history of that dog and, and its ability to to work with us in the future and so how many uh, rogue dogs do you currently have in the team how many humans as well is it a one-for-one one kind of thing no it's um we're, we're still in the early stages of starting up rogues so we're a bit we're, we're a bit heavy on the dog side and lighter on the human side at the moment I think we have 18 dogs right now and nine bounders, which is what we call a handler. Okay. And your, so your early days, small team, but obviously you're looking to kind of get some more, more people involved in the project. Oh, no, I wouldn't say that either. We, <laughs> we definitely want to stay small. Yeah, uh, we just have more enough. dogs now per bounder than, than we would expect. Yeah. And, and that kind of comes with the territory. You're not, and and as it is, we're we're kind of like a big pack in that out of those 18 dogs, we would all work with those dogs and they, they kind of rotate amongst us. So it's not matched up with one handler, one dog. And that's that's the only dog you work while you're here. You could work, you know, five to eight different dogs in a year um, or or even all 18. Who knows? But a lot of those dogs in the 18, though, I'd say not a lot, but about a quarter of them are retired and as they get older obviously they can't do as much work they may do uh demonstrations for classes class groups and things like that but they do retire with us and they spend the rest of their days here kind of well i've got i've got a few laying back here on dog beds around a, a wood stove moment but uh, uh 
wish they'd come up and just jump next to you so they could join the podcast. Oh. <laughs> They're sleepy. Yeah. Don't disturb them. Um, yeah. So what kind of work do you do at Rogue Detection Teams? Yeah. So, well, a little bit of everything. Uh, and it's, it's inter- you know, I'll, I'll speak about myself for a moment or, or the team in general. But since we are a small group and we are a team, we, we all kind of wear a bunch of different hats and, and those kind of rotate. And it, it kind of makes us out to all be a little bit of a jack of all trades in that we all have our hands and a little bit of everything to help each other, you know, with things that are going on, um, whether that's a scientific paper. Oh, there's one of them. Oh, there <laughs> Hello. Um, whether that's a scientific paper or, uh, you know, putting together a pamphlet or helping with the website or answering emails. I mean, there's all sorts of things mm-hmm. that are on top of working with the dogs as a program. Our job, it encompasses a lot of things as well. We want to provide experienced and knowledgeable teams that can go out and help researchers with projects. We want to be a resource for the community as far as learning how to communicate with with either your own personal dog or setting up a program like this in other countries mm-hmm. um, or, or even in the United States. So we, we kind of cover a lot of a lot of different aspects with the program, mm-hmm. but it's all it's all obviously centered around the dogs. Yeah. Okay. So on your website, it says you're kind of advocating for the conservation detection dog methodology. What does that mean? Yeah. So that, that could mean a lot of things depending on who you talk to. Okay. And one of the things we're really starting to push a bit more is our philosophy. And like I said, you know, that's where the name rogue comes in as well. We, um, our, our philosophy is a lot of people will bring up the word train, like, how do you train people? How do you train the dogs? I'm sure some of my fellow coworkers and bounders right now are rolling their eyes, but I've kind of outlawed the word train. And that's as we've started to develop this philosophy or, or kind of look at what philosophy, we, what philosophy we've been developing. I started to realize that there's certain words that, you know, the definition may be correct, but how it's interpreted by a person or a society is a bit different. And train's a really good example of that. When we train something, we we anticipate it doing a certain thing that we want it to do. So we have a predetermined outcome that we're looking for. Our philosophy is a bit different in that we're focusing on on communicating or teaching. And the the difference that comes there is you can you can take a dog and and you can train it to do exactly what you want. You can you can instill you know years of training and then pass it on to somebody you know, sell it to them or rent it to them and say, okay, this is what the dog will do. Just don't mess that up. Our philosophy is different in that we don't train the dogs to necessarily do anything. We learn to communicate with them to reach that goal together. And they're going to, we're, we're asking them to, you know, let's, let's just take, we'll take bear scat, for example. If we want them to find a bear scat, we'll show them a bear scat and we give them a reward. And then that's our ability to communicate. Hey, we're looking for this bear scat. It kind of stops there. So when we're training a dog, you can train a dog to do that in, in literally an afternoon. Um, you, you set out a scat, you, you have the dog alert to it, they get the ball and they make that association. What develops from that is what is really more important. And that's your, your communication with that dog and, and we'll say the bond that you form together. And over time and through our our kind of philosophy, you learn to communicate with all the dogs, not just that one dog. And that communication, just like if you were talking to a person, will be different between each each person and each dog. 
So I may communicate with Allie in a certain way, but maybe Pips is a different type of dog and I communicate him with differently than I do Scooby. So, you know, we have all these different dogs with their own personalities and we don't kind of uh, look at it as they have to understand what we're saying and that they react to our personality. We look at it as, okay, they have their own personality. How do we relate to that? And how do we use that to help us reach our goal together? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. So these, these dogs that are currently part of your pack, so just like humans, they have different personalities. Can you talk just briefly about what a couple of those personalities are and how you would communicate differently to each of those personalities? Like what does that interaction look like? Yeah, totally. And as I'm talking about this, just understand that if it was a different bounder working with these dogs, all that would be completely mm -hmm. could be completely different again, um, just just because each of us are unique as well. So let's take uh, we'll take we'll, we'll make it kind of simple and just take cattle dogs and Labradors for a minute. And, and we have some cattle dogs that act like Labradors and some Labradors that act like cattle dogs. But just to make things a little bit simpler, uh, a cattle dog is a type of dog that you know, has been bred for, for herding. They check in a lot with their bounder. Like you'll, you see a lot of kind of eye communication going on and interacting together. Whereas a, a Labrador, a lot of times, you know, they're kind of more of an independent dog in that they just love to run around. And as, as they're running around, they pick up an, an odor and they'll track it down and say, Oh, here's what you're looking for. And they're super happy about it. Um, mm. So they're, they're kind of like this bubbly, wandering dog that runs around you the whole time whereas the cattle dog is is a bit more like a detective and they're checking in and and they're also equally super excited about it but they're a bit more cool about it like mm -hmm. i got it mm -hmm. we did it you know mm -hmm. so <laughs> there's a difference in how you would work with each of those types of dogs okay so that would involve a lot of i guess paying attention and listening to the dog and kind of respecting them yeah totally yeah. When when someone comes to us to to learn to work with dogs, you know, the the mindset's usually that you'll get paired up with a particular dog and you'll work that dog and then maybe after you've got that down you'll work a different dog. But we don't do that. When when you show up here, depending on how many dogs are around, you could be working 15 different dogs, you know, five the first day, five the next day and five on your third day. So you've it'll be 4 days before you get back to the dog you started with. Mm -hmm. And the, the best way I can say to kind of think of that is like language immersion. You know, if you're trying to learn a foreign language and you just get dropped in the country, then you kind of have to learn it. And in learning that, you you start to learn, you know, like uh, the dialects and how people are saying it and the body language that's going on with it. So when when we kind of encourage people to work with a bunch of different dogs, it um, it changes the way they think. They're no longer to make assumptions of, of this communication they're developing with a particular dog and that's what as people we tend to do we tend to to kind of come up with oh yeah i'm really connected to this dog they're they're really bond i mean i'll hear people say this to me you know you're, we're really bonding and what what we know here is as soon as you pass the ball to if i was working with pips and i pass the ball over to somebody he doesn't even know and he sees they have the ball well he's not listening to me anymore he's now listening to that person that has the ball like that ball is what he's working for and so whatever whatever kind of super bond or relationship I feel like I have with Pips, and we, and we do have a great relationship, it's not quite as romantic as as I want to think it might be. Not not that I'm romantically involved with Pips, but 
you know, <laughs> romantic in that, in that uh, you know, it's this this supernatural connection we have together. Interesting. That is very interesting. So it's not like from me not knowing you, not knowing your dogs and the relationship that you have, but I know that you've been working with them for, you know, so many years and this is your job. I just would naturally assume that there is this kind of supernatural, really deep connection um, that is like you can mind read each other almost kind of thing. Oh, that, that's there. That's there. Um, okay. And, and that's exactly what, you know, when people show up, we'll be doing some exercises or something and I'll step in and, and the dog just does what kind of what I am, am saying they'll do. And people are like, oh, that's just because you have this relationship already with the dog. and. I mean, sure, there's some of that there, but what is really important is the dog's reading my body language and and kind of what I'm asking it to do without, you know, using commands that everybody's hearing. So it does kind of come across as this telepathic type mm-hmm. supernatural communication, but it, it's really a lot simpler than that. Yeah. And it's harder for people to, to see that. So, you know, a good example would be, you know, I, I, sometimes I'll do demonstrations and, and I can set out a pine cone. And I'll I'll show people like this dog's not trained on pine cones, but watch I can make them alert to that pine cone just like they would a scat, just based off my body language. And the importance of that is when somebody doesn't realize what they're saying through their body language, and you're teaching a dog to go out and find an endangered grizzly bear scat. Well, the dog can can read your body language, and before you know it, they're hitting on deer and coyote and whatever else that you're not really looking for. And then you're going well. This dog doesn't work. They're hitting on everything. Well, what the dog's actually doing is interpreting what you're you're communicating and asking, and they're doing exactly what they think they're supposed to be doing. They're not trying to trick you by hitting on coyote just so they get their ball. They're they're reading what you're doing. And generally what'll happen is a dog's a dog. They're gonna smell things, they're gonna pee on things. And then, you know, a coyotes, for example, another canid, the dog's going to go up and smell that. And you can teach them not to pee on it and stuff. But when you start asking them not to smell things, then you're kind of going against what they do. As long as you don't show interest in that coyote scat until, you know, and they move off, they're not going to sit at it. But as soon as you you get excited, like, oh, they found something. What is it? I want to go check it out, too. The dog's going to interpret that. Oh, you're excited about this? Okay, it's not what we're looking for. But yeah, this is great. That's really interesting. So they're like acutely aware of what you do, your body language, what yeah, the sounds every, that you make, and then they try and associate some kind of meaning to that. Yeah, they are they are reading everything that's going on with us. And a, and a, one thing I try to, and this seems a bit kind of new agey or spiritually or some, something <laughs> along those lines, but one of the things I try to get across to people is when you're working with the dogs, Think about your what you're asking them. Like, think about it in your head. Visualize it and visualize the dog doing that. And the idea is not there that, you know, you somehow control the dog by telepathically envisioning it in your mind. What happens is if you can think about that working in your head, then your body starts to kind of listen to that. And if you convinced yourself, yeah, this is going to work, then your body believes it. And then the dog reads it and then it happens. I think that makes sense as well. I mean, if you are just more conscious of that process and what you want to happen and what you potentially can do to make that happen, if you didn't think about it, if you weren't super conscious about it, maybe you'll just say something you know, and your body's just still and that yep. may not communicate well to the dog. But if you're more conscious about that process and you say something with your voice and then with your hands and all of your body, 
maybe that message will convey a little bit more effectively. So I think that makes makes sense. It's just a matter of just being more conscious and that can apply to everything you do. Totally. Yeah. And then if you, if you take that a step further, eventually you get to the point where you don't have to talk to the dogs. Like it's all communicated through body language. Uh, It's beyond words to describe, but when you, when you get out in the field and you're working with, with these dogs, a lot of times it's just you and the dog. You're the only two people out there anywhere and you're you're spending all day with them and and some of our projects you know you'll be in the you'll be in the back country for a few weeks at a time just you and the dog and you don't have to say a word that entire time but you're you're completing this task that you've been sent out to do and you know maybe that's collecting mountain lion scat or sierra red red fox scat but it's just amazing to see this communi- to be part of this communication that's happening between you and a and another animal okay uh, it's incredible Sounds incredible. Sounds really cool. Like it's that, that relationship and just, I mean, even from a human to human point of view, the teachings that the learnings that you you have through these interactions with your dog that can be applied just to human society as well. Just like these little things can translate it or no. I see your facial um, reaction there. No. <laughs> I'm reading your body I was, language. I was thinking about, I was thinking about this before the, before the podcast and you know, I, I feel like I have this this kind of unique talent to communicate with dogs. Um, I don't know that that transfers <laughs> as well for me to humans. I have a much harder time communicating with people than I do dogs. And maybe that's because the dogs are so well at reading my body language. I don't have to, to say everything straight out, whereas people don't really understand my body language so much, um, mm-hmm. you know. I'm, a lot of times, if I'm playing a joke or something, people take it serious. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm really serious about something, they think I'm <laughs> I'm playing a joke on them. So <laughs> my uh, I'm a little bit confusing in that sense. But yeah, I I I definitely think it could be useful. I just haven't been able to to switch over to people so, so well. Switch that one over. Fair enough. I find that kind of communicate. I'm a bit of it. Like you mentioned, being an introvert. I'm an introvert myself which seems kind of ironic that I host a podcast, but what I find is I'm really like, I really enjoy one-on-one conversations. I'm not good in group settings. Um, so I can kind of trick my brain that this is a one-on-one conversation without understanding. Oh yeah. Yeah. Totally. This is actually going out to a lot more than one, one person. But yeah, that's, that is interesting. Just that dynamic between communicating, just communication in general is so complex and dynamic, but going, is, yeah. going back to, I guess some of the, some specific work that you do on your website, you mentioned that you've got, you know, rogue detection teams and, and the people involved have a lot of experience working with endangered species around the world. Can you talk about some of that work and perhaps some of the endangered species that you have worked with? Yeah. So, um, well, right now we're, we're do, we have a project in, uh, Yosemite national park working with Sierra Red, Sierra Nevada, Red Fox. That's a, that's, kind of like a red fox that you see in normal places, but it lives up higher. And we're trying to help determine where it, where it actually is and, and steps that can be taken to make sure it survives. I'm doing some work with, uh, with a, an endangered uh, butterfly. We're actually looking for the caterpillar for the Oregon silver spot butterfly. And so we're teaching the dogs to find frass, which is their scat. And that's about the size of, of pepper flakes. Um, so you can see why we need a dog. I'm trying to think of some of the others. The problem, 
The problem I generally run into here is we've done a lot of work in the last 20 years, but we've only done a year's work as rogues in and in it gets a bit confusing uh, who's done what work. But in you know over over the past 20 years we've we've done work with grizzly bears and tigers and mountain lions and pangolins and I mean all sorts of stuff. And and the important thing to I think the important concept to understand is you know if something's endangered uh, the dogs can can really help in those situations where it's hard to get the data because um, we can either we can either teach the dogs to to find the actual animal and we do that in some cases where it may not be endangered but it's invasive and there's a low population of invasive animals that you need to find to be able to remove to protect the endangered species. It could be a an endangered species um, in that you know, you're not even sure if they're there. So if you're training on the scat, then there's a lot more scat per individual. And then you have a much better chance of finding it because you just have to find the scat. Mm -hmm. To the dogs, it, it, they don't care if it's endangered or if it's everywhere or if it's a plant or an animal or, or anything. It's all just an odor to them. Mm -hmm. So we do end up doing things like toxins that it could be in the environment or diseases that could be in trees or invasive plants that are coming up. So it's um it's it's all kind of the same An another important thing to keep in mind is the dog method is only one one of the many many methods out there to find information and a lot of times we get asked you know how does the dog method compare to uh trapping or camera traps or hair snares that's not really an answer I'm, yeah well it's not an answer i'm so much concerned with we know what dogs are capable of what dog teams need to correct myself there, what dog teams are capable of. And just like if you were setting out a camera trap, if you don't know how to set up the camera, the camera's not going to work so well. If you don't know how to work the dog, the, dog, the dog's not going to work mm -hmm. as well as a team, a team could. Mm -hmm. But there's no reason you can't do camera traps and a dog or mm -hmm. camera traps, a dog team, and hair snares. And then you're getting information in a lot of different ways. And I think that's the real value, that's the value for researchers to kind of understand. Don't don't limit yourself to one method, but use these methods to complement each other. Mm -hmm. I believe in that. I mean, I think it seems as though humans fall into the trap sometimes of trying to find out some kind of master answer that applies to yeah. every single problem possible. And that just isn't the case. It's all, like I said a minute ago, it depends the best answer depends on a million different variables it's all context driven so yeah this is just um, the work that you're doing is an important piece of the the puzzle i think but there's plenty of pieces obviously yeah but the work is based around detecting things whatever that might be it's based around detection so using the the skill set of a dog that humans don't have so their their acute sense of smell and that kind of stuff yeah, so that's they make a good combo. Humans and dogs make a good combo in a lot of these situations because we're both working up each each other's different skill sets. Yeah, so let's let's take a bounder for example. You know, with the proper kind of instruction and and teaching and stuff. I'm trying to avoid the word training there. <laughs> um, when they when they get to a point where they're let's say they they know how to communicate with the dog and that's all done which honestly takes years they also should be able to to read the landscape so they're looking at wind patterns that are happening um, if it's a if it's a sunny day or a cloudy day if it's hot or cold how strong the wind is they're thinking about all that but then they're also thinking about 
the ecology of whatever animal they're looking for. So, you know, if they're if they're out looking for mountain lions, they're going to think about, okay, where would the mountain lion be on this landscape? They're reading tracks, they're coming across any kind of sign that's out there. And then they're also thinking about the prey of the mountain lion. So a lot of times to find these predators, you want to go where the prey is. So they're they're thinking about all sorts of stuff out there in addition to the dog. And that's where the whole team aspect comes in because the dog has a phenomenal ability to smell, you know, way better than than we can can catch odors on the wind. But if a dog can't read the landscape and and let's say uh, there's a hill and the odor's coming off a hill and it disappears right at the bottom of that hill, but then they pick it up farther away from the hill. As they move toward the hill, they lose that odor and they're like, okay, it's not this direction. And then they, you know, they'll wander around. They can't find that sample. But a, a bounder is able to look at that landscape and go, okay, the wind's coming from this direction. And I've got this hill here that's kind of maybe pushing the odor over. Let's move over here and look. And then they help the dog find that odor. So they work as a team. And that that becomes extremely important on studies, especially where you're looking for endangered species. You you don't want to just go out there with a dog and think you're going to find things. It it does take a team to do that, mm-hmm. to do it well. Okay. So I'm going to quickly go back to something you said earlier in the podcast about the work that you're doing now wasn't originally your goal. Um, what was your goal 19 years ago before you discovered your first dog was Gator? Yeah. 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 What was your original goal and kind of, you know, how did you meet Gator as well? Like, What was that turning point like? Sure. Yeah. So my up until the point I I had met Gator, I had worked on black bears, wolverines, uh, red wolves, uh, all kinds of megafauna projects. You know, super cool things where you're you're trapping things and you're getting your picture taken with them, and you feel really cool. Like, yeah, I'm 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 a wildlife yep. person. Yeah. And you know, honestly, if if I had thought about, it, I probably should have been a naturalist. But I didn't know what a naturalist was. I didn't know what a wildlife biologist was when I came out of high school. What is a naturalist? And, just real quick. Oh, a naturalist. A naturalist is more someone that kind of watches nature and instead of involving themselves in it, kind of okay, to gotcha. to find out things scientifically. Okay. Both are both are, are really cool professions and and serve a great purpose. But as I as I was doing all these megafauna projects, you know, where you were generally. Uh, anesthetizing animals and then putting collars on them or ear tags or tattoos and taking blood samples and tooth samples and all kinds of important things to learn about them and their health. And I thought that was just the way things had to be done. I had a friend that applied for a job in Jasper, Alberta, working with grizzly bears. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. I'll apply for that as well. And I did. And I didn't really pay attention so much to it. It was just, you know, generally when you're in this field of kind of a seasonal wildlife technician, you're going from one job to the next and you're you're putting out a lot of resumes and applications to try to find that next job. And this was one of those. Um, we both ended up getting the job and showed up and we were we were what was called orienteers. There used to be a, a third member to the dog and handler team of an orienteer and the orienteer would read the map and generally collect the samples and the handler focused on playing with the dog and reading them. Anyway, I was hired as an orienteer and we showed up and realized, you know, oh, there's these dogs that we're kind of involved with. Like we, we're not allowed to touch them or anything, but their handler is, is handling all that. Um, as it turned out, uh, Gator was this blue healer and his handler had just gotten a puppy at home. And so he didn't want to take Gator home at night because the puppy was there. Kind of, we were camping on this property and, uh, 
And so I kind of ended up, I took care of Gator in the, in the evenings after, after his handler had gone home. And so Gator moved into my truck and over the course of the summer, Gator and I bonded quite a bit into the, to where Gator kind of listened to me more than other people. And inadvertently through all that, I ended up becoming Gator's handler. And then the next year I was the crew leader. And the year after that, we kind of started conservation canines. And that, that all stemmed from after I met Gator, this was just a summer job. I adopted Gator um, at the end of that summer. And then every job I applied for, I couldn't get because I had a dog. Like, you know, most uh, wildlife jobs, you can't bring a dog with you or the Forest Service doesn't allow dogs to stay in the barracks or who knows what. And so I, I just couldn't take a lot of jobs. So I ended up actually going to work at Lowe's <laughs> Home Improvement because all of a sudden I, in one sense, I had a, I had a child I was responsible for now in that, you know, I couldn't just leave Gator and go take a job. Like he was part of my life now. And, uh, so it, uh, I, I also realized through that whole thing, sorry, I kind of got off topic there thinking about Gator, but I also realized the strength and, and what, Gator was able to help us do in that when he found a sample, um, that sample could be sent to a lab where they would get either they could get DNA and see what individual it was. They could see if it was male or female, if it was female, if she was pregnant, how healthy they were, any diseases they might have, what their diet was and what their location was. So this was a lot of the same information I had helped get when I was was trapping and, and say, tagging a bear. You know, we, we'd put a radio collar and we could track it. And sure, you get some phenomenal information about that. And it's extremely important having that information. But at the same time, we could go through the landscape and look at a lot of different bears at the same time and see what their locations were and start to get a picture that way. So for me personally, being able to connect with an animal, in this case, the dog, was what I was kind of hoping to have in studying bears. Like I was connecting with the bears in, in one sense. And then seeing seeing this this uh, connection I made with Gator was that was everything I'd been looking for in life. It was it was amazing. And then the the ability to use that to help endangered species or plants or whatever was was just kind of icing. Yeah, what a bonus. Yeah. Do you have any favorite memories with working with Gator? Oh, <laughs> um, Gator Gator was a he was a, amazing. He had this smile. You know, I, I don't know that before working with dogs, I would think the dogs really smiled. And now we have a dog in the program, Jack. He he has an incredible smile as well. But Gator Gator was um he was like a grumpy old man and <laughs> in that he wasn't super friendly with, with everybody, but he and I had this uh it's like we're two grumpy old men, I guess. But we, we had this understanding and you know, I, I could sit down and, and uh Gator come up. This actually happened in the field one day. Gator came up and um, I was eating my sandwich. I, I always eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I, I'd like to know how many I've eaten in my life. But um, I had this peanut butter and jelly sandwich and, and Gator's trying to nose in. And I'm like, you know, go eat your go eat your like I gave him a lunch of, of kibble as well. And I was like, go eat your kibble and then you can have a piece of my sandwich. So he walks over and he eats his kibble and then he comes back and I'm like, what? <laughs> so... You know, that's, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of instances like that where the dogs, I mean, they literally do, it's like they understand English also, which, you know, I don't, I don't think they actually do, but it's just, a, they're, they're so shocking sometimes in the things that they can understand and figure out and actually do to help us. Mm -hmm. Okay. So throughout the years of working with dogs and gator and 
What are some things that dogs have taught you? Well, you know, as I said, I had cats growing up and cats are amazing. <laughs> but dogs are, um, I mean, they're different, obviously. They're, they're selfless. They're, um, they're loyal. They're, they're honest. They're, they're kind of jubilant. They're always happy to see you unless you've been gone for like three months and then it might take a day or two before they, they acknowledge that you've actually come back. But, uh, <laughs> but when they do, they're super happy that you're back. So I, I've learned a lot from dogs just in being kind of genuine. I think that's, that's one of the things they, that just their outlook on life is, is really positive And I, I really like that. So they're authentic that they're themselves yeah. and they accept that and they're happy with that. And that kind of seems to like radiate and inspire others around them to probably do the same. It, it seems like whenever I'm around a dog and I always, and they're always so happy, I'm like, I want to be happy too. Like it just radiates out. Yeah. I, another thing I, I probably more work related, I've realized is patience. You can, you know, you're, you're trying to work with a dog on something and you, you've got some elaborate apparatus set up and the dog comes through and just knocks everything over and you're like, oh, God, this is never going to work. And then you try again and it gets a little better. And then let's say the third time it just works. Like the dogs are incredible at, you know, when, when we go through school, we're kind of taught to, to kind of really put our, our head to the, to the grindstone. Is that the, our nose to the grindstone? I can't remember now, but really kind of buckle down and study, study, study and cram and, and memorize all this stuff. What I've learned with the dogs is you teach them a little bit, like maybe you do an exercise for 15 minutes and you let them, you let them go and think about it for 30 minutes to an hour. You bring them out. It's like they've been thinking about it that entire time. And so in working with the dogs, you have these little steps that you take. And before you know it, you've accomplished so much. But if you take a dog and you just, you say like eight hours today, we're going to work on this. You don't get anywhere. And uh, it's it's incredible to watch the dogs grasp things, like to see them make that connection. Mm -hmm. uh, especially like, like when you're when you're taking a dog that's let's say been at a rescue or a shelter for years because it's not adoptable or it's somewhat aggressive or destroys couches to get to a tennis ball or whatever. When they come here, they're kind of they they seem a bit defeated sometimes. And then as they go through learning the stuff we do, you you actually see their body physically change in that, you know, they hold themselves with kind of like a purpose, like a sense of pride. And and that's amazing to watch, to see how their their body just changes. And, and uh, it's incredible, like to, just to see how much they love what they do. That is really interesting, that thing about purpose. That's something that I think is quite important for us humans is grasping potentially what that could look like because that is just so good for you you know and it helps you just move through life with a bit more happiness and that kind of stuff and so i never really associated that sense of purpose with i guess animals in that way where i just thought maybe that purpose was ingrained into them but you're saying that they can kind of rediscover that as well. It seems like they can discover that and like be better off as a result. Oh yeah. And, uh, it's funny. I actually saw that more in the dogs before I started to actually see it in the, the handlers, the bounders as well. Um, you can, you can see the bounders kind of get that, that sense of purpose and belonging and, 
how important the work is we do, but also their ability to have this connection with the dogs. And it, it changes people. I should point out real quick before I forget, um, our dogs, you were talking about kind of rediscovering their purpose. Our dogs aren't, we don't adopt puppies. They're at least a year and a half old and, and they may be up to five years old when we adopt them. And so, you know, the whole thing, you can't teach a dog, a, an old dog new tricks isn't true, obviously. These are dogs that, and we're also very careful if someone has a dog and we think it could do well in a home or, or get adopted and have just a family life, that it has that opportunity. We're looking for the dogs that are out of chances. You know, they, they've destroyed people's homes. I'll take Pips for a good example. Uh, Pips came to us from a, an incredible rescue in Arizona, United Friends Partnership. And uh, he, had, he had been at a, a shelter and adopted out and returned three times. He then got rescued by, by United Friends, and they, um, they had adopted him out a, a bunch of times, and he got returned. And, and Pips, is, uh, he's, a, he's another cattle dog, which um, he, he's just a hoot, but he's, he, can, he likes to tear things up. Um, he just has this, he has so much energy, he has to let it out on something. Usually it's blankets or curtains or a couch or whatever, whatever's around that's destructible. But he just, the, you couldn't find a home for him. Like he couldn't just stay in a home and be happy. He needed a job. Um, so they reached out to us and we ended up, they brought him up and we adopted him and he became part of our team and, and is amazing. But for us, we look for those dogs that have this insatiable drive to just play fetch all day long. And, and they would literally do that until they, they just fall over and can't play anymore. Um, there's times where we actually have to put them on a leash to get them to come out of the field because they continue, they would just want to keep looking for things to play ball. That's a nice touch. So the dogs that you have in the team, you're wanting what's best for them. And if that means not being part of very detection teams and being in a family like somewhere else, for example, you're all for that. And I, I like that kind of going back to the difference between training and teaching. I guess from what I understand from what you said, the teaching part is the end goal is like a shared goal at the end. It's not a human goal. And that may be the training part is you're training the dog to reach this human goal whereas the teaching is kind of this, this shared goal um, where the, the human and the dog would like to get to like they both benefit from from that process exactly you know a lot of times folks will show up for classes and and they want they want like a rule book or a, a, a manual on how i work a dog and there there isn't one i mean you could make one but it wouldn't apply necessarily to it wouldn't apply to most people the way i do things so when someone comes here and, and is taking a course, that course is designed around them and each dog they're working specifically. So let's say uh, Joe goes out and is working pips and I tell him to do a certain thing while he's working pips, like based on their communication. Well, then Jane goes out to work pips and I say the exact opposite thing. And, and people get super frustrated with this. They're like, but you just told Joe to do this. And I was like, well, that was let's look at the situation. And this is what was happening with Joe. Now, if we look at the situation with you, this is what's happening. And that calls for a completely different approach. Mm -hmm. And the key there is, is not knowing exactly what to do. The key there is, is understanding the communication that's happening and being able to, to kind of um, anticipate that or see what's happening and change how you're communicating quickly to get to the end result you're looking for. So it's all, it's all very organic. Yeah, all organic. What is the mission for rogue detection teams? The mission. <laughs> You know, it, it kind of being a resource out there for people to, to come and, and see there is a different way, but then also to form these collaborations between 
you know, researchers and conservationists and wildlife scientists and and just people um, and communities and, and and bringing that all together to show how well dogs can help us help us do all that and just communication, how important communication is. Okay, so how can people connect with road detection teams online and even like if they want to get involved with some of the work or help out in any way, how can they do that? Uh, well, great question. Um, we have a website, which is uh, roguedogs.org. Uh, we have a Facebook page, which I think is also Rogue Dogs. And then we have an Instagram, which is Rogue Detection Teams. And uh, hopefully we eventually get those all to match up. But we were kind of confused on what our name was going to be <laughs> when mm -hmm. we first started out. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's the best way. They can also send us an email at contact at roguedogs.org. And um, we'd be happy to answer that as well. Okay, perfect. Last question. What message do you want to leave the conservation tribe? Well, that's a that's a good one. Um, I guess, uh, you know, to just uh, to stay positive, like I was talking about with the dogs, be genuine in what you're doing. Stay positive. And, you know, as long as you're trying to help the world and, and, and make it a better place, you're doing the right thing. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.